Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today's episode features Lynn Barr, CEO and founder of Caravan Health, and founder of the National Rural Accountable Care Organization. Lynn shares with us how her matters in public health collided with value-based care programs to help her build a blossoming ACO that is helping rural healthcare survive and thrive across the country. Let's take a listen. So, I mean, it's hard to know how far to go back. So I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm just going to go back to 2010. <laughs> Because that's really when the Affordable Care Act, the High Tech Act, and everything really changed for for uh, providers in America. And I was uh, I was I was getting my master's in public health at the time, and and my my dream had been to to start getting all the data that's out there and putting it together so we could do something with it. I had uh, my previous career before entering into this space. I had been in the uh, medical devices, diagnostics, and pharmaceutical side of, of healthcare. And I had uh, taken 13 products through the FDA into worldwide markets and was very disturbed, like having a hard time sleeping at night because I knew that we didn't really know what those products did in the real world. And, um, and it, you know, it's because the way clinical trials are, are sort of these ivory tower, you know, uh, uh, studies that exclude most of the patients that you'd really have using the drugs, um, and and almost all drugs are are not taken as they were tested in clinical trials, and so I thought, well, you know, there's all this information out there. Patients should have access to something like Google, 
where they could go into it and say, you know, hi, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old. I've got hypertension. I've just been diagnosed with diabetes. What happens in the real world to people like me? What kind of drugs do people take? How long do they live? What are the true side effects? Because everything we do to patients have, have, has unintended consequences that are not understood by either the providers or the patients. So with all of that in mind, I, uh, I left the, uh, the dark side of, of uh, devices and diagnostics and moved over to the provider side. And at age 50, got my master's in public health at the University of California. In my uh, internship, which was an awkward thing to have at my stage in the career, but you had to have it in order to get your MPH, was with the state of California uh, developing the strategic plan for health information technology and exchange. And we assembled 600 stakeholders across the country who all had you know, uh, you know, skin in the game related to health information exchange. So hospitals, providers, health systems, payers. And, um, and I had uh, these 600 um, uh, stakeholders, which I had organized into these working groups. I, I had one of my stakeholders was rural. And what struck me right away is starting to work with that stakeholder group was they were the only ones that really wanted to share information because they had no access to, to information. The big systems, they had their own data and they felt it was proprietary and they didn't want anybody to be able to see their data. And the rural providers were open to this idea of sharing data. So as I was, as I was formulating my, my plans for how am I gonna go get all this data from all these providers and put it in one place so we can really understand what works and what doesn't, it became obvious that rural, in the United States, rural was going to be the place to go. And I thought about it, I said, you know, there's 60 million people living in, in rural America. That's the size of a good-sized European country. That's enough data for us to be able to really understand and figure this out. And, um, and with their cooperation, we'd be able to do this. So I left, uh, I graduated from um, Cal in 2010 and took a job as a chief information officer in a rural hospital because I'd never, you know, hadn't worked in a hospital, didn't really understand what, what that was like and really wanted to, you know, be part of this exciting movement towards health information technology and exchange, which, um, you know, is I think anybody who, who entered into that space in that time, um, you know, had, we all had such great aspirations and hopes and dreams about interoperability and electronic health records. And, um, and it's been a very difficult journey ever since as we've learned about the limitations of, of those health records and interoperability. So as part of my work um, in rural, the first thing I did actually was, was a, a, uh, I uh, worked with a United Health Group who I'd gotten to, to know during my uh, um, internship at the state. And uh, I, I, the, the rural hospitals in California didn't have the money to buy electronic health records. And they all knew they'd get the money back, but, but there's about a two-year lag, and they didn't have the cash. So I convinced United Health Group to loan $20 million to the rural hospitals in California 
against their shared saving or their uh, Medicare um, meaningful use payments. And that allowed all of, all of our rural hospitals to get um, electronic health records in California. But when I did it, I made a promise to them. I said that, you know, this is great. And, you know, you've got these payments that are going to come for a short period of time. But if we can't figure out how to actually make you money off of these new investments, because, you know, I, I, I helped them negotiate the contracts. They had maintenance payments that were going to go on for years and years and years that were not going to be covered by those, those special payments anymore. And their uh, Medicare cost-based reimbursement would only cover about half. So where were they going to come up with $500,000 a year for maintenance payments? And so I made a commitment to them that I would try to find a way to make money off of the work they were doing to advance themselves into value-based care. I looked around at that time, you know, so now we're kind of in the early 2010s. And uh, by 2012 or so, there had been uh, 30 or 40 different uh, uh, programs announced for providers to experiment with value-based payments. And we weren't eligible for any of them. We were too small. We didn't, you know, we weren't paid the right way. It just, you know, it didn't, it, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't participate in anything. And I kept looking at accountable care organizations saying, you know, there's one thing that makes sense is, is the law of numbers, right? And so rural communities are small and they don't have, they don't have a, lot of, a lot of patients. And so you have to go with whatever value-based program is going to be focused on having the most number of patients that they could be able to participate in. And that was population health. Population health also was their mission. Their whole reason for being was to take care of the population in their community. And they had great relationships with those patients as well. So I saw ACOs as, as possibly being the way we could generate the income to pay for the infrastructure that we had just adopted um, in terms of electronic health records and health information exchange. And from there, uh, we started our, um, uh, but, but of course my hospital didn't have enough, we didn't have 5,000 lives as no, almost no rural hospital did. So uh, I ended up working with the National Rural Health Association and uh, got involved in their programs, became a fellow, started recruiting rural hospitals and said, you know, why don't we just band together? We don't, it's a federal program. We don't even have to be in, in the same state. And we, we launched the first uh, national rural ACO in 2014 with uh, nine hospitals uh, and, uh, and a group of FQHCs in Michigan, Indiana, and California. Um, and, and that became the national rural ACO. So that, that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, let me, I just want to say thank you for your work on the federal health IT strategic plan going way back when, because that is something that helped direct my career. So personal, your work definitely contributed to my career path. So I, I'll awesome. let Robin ask her question, but I just want to say thank you. Okay. So that is still the work that's continuing today, right? With the National Rural Accountable Care Consortium and the association there. How many people are part of that today? So, um, so 
after after we started that AC the ACO, we, I also started a nonprofit called the National Rural Accountable Care Consortium. The National Rural Accountable Care Consortium uh, became a practice transformation network for CMS, and um, and it served more than six thousand rural providers across the country. And then um, in the on the ACO side. Uh, we we now so our first ACO had like twelve thousand lives in nine health systems, and now today we are two hundred and fifty health systems and six hundred and thirty thousand Medicare attributed beneficiaries. That is tremendous. And so I have to ask: when you think about that in the context of rural health survivability in America at this point in time, do you believe? Or do you, can you guys, you know, talk about or prove or substantiate the fact that also that this banding together has also been a mechanism by which these groups now that weren't previously eligible for some of these other initiatives or would have been too small as independent facilities or a couple of facilities grouped together, this has been a way forward for them and those lives that are being served, right? That's right. And, and without, you know, figuring out how to have people collaborate. I mean, we treat every rural, every community like their own ACO, but everyone's got to do the work. And so you have to have standards, you have to have accountability, reporting, remediation. There's got to be a way to hold everyone accountable. And that's not easy to do. Um, but we had to figure it out from day one, because without that, we realized our first year, by the way, um, we were not successful. <laughs> you know, our costs went up by five percent, and our quality was just about the worst in the country. And that was a real wake-up call that that we needed to be that this isn't this isn't as easy as it looks. We thought, you know, we're we're first movers, we're high quality. You know, we're just going to get showered with accolades and money. And, <laughs> and no, <laughs> no, it's actually really really hard work. Because you know, there's very few things you can do to, to bend the cost curve today. But mostly it's about changing patient behavior. And it's hand-to-hand -hand combat with your patients. And it's hand-to-hand -hand combat with the practices to get them to embrace team-based care, to use nurses to promote population health. I mean, you've got to change how we support patients. Not change how no. we practice medicine. I mean, we practice our, we do really well practicing medicine as a country. We just don't manage patients well, and we needed to teach everybody how to do that and then know that they were doing it. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes on the, on the surface and a lot of the programs Julie and I work in, because it does kind of dovetail with what Caravan does, we have an understanding of that space. You know, my first inclination is to ask you when you say that, how did you get everyone doing it, right? How did you get buy-ins across it or whatever? But your point is more deeply rooted in that change management of patients in a rural health setting where sometimes, A, there may not be a continuum of a relationship from a patient to a provider. We also know that trust issues in rural health settings can be more inflamed than, say, an urban area. Tell us about some of the things you've seen, some of the most challenged you know, areas, facilities, or regions. How are they reaching out down to meet the patient where they are to overcome that because like I think what you're trying to say is when that happens collecting the data on the metrics and practicing that medicine is great but that's really where the missing link is what are some of the things y'all have done 
to have such a significant stride forward from year one to year two and where you all are today? So we, um, we, it's funny, um, you know, their, their primary care capacity was a huge issue, right? Um, there just is none. And, you know, everyone's using the emergency department. Patients are self-referring like crazy. It, it was just a mess. And so we had one, you know, we try to keep things simple and focus on a few things at once. And we had one requirement that made all the difference. We require all of our clients to use nurses to manage their population. And so, so they bring in a nurse and that nurse then takes over responsibility for the prevention, wellness, and chronic care management of that community. And a lot of these rural communities, if we're just dealing with Medicare, it's one nurse, right? And everybody knows her name, right? I mean, it's, and she becomes sort of the, the medical, she's the medical home. And, and once we moved to that model, and then we had a workforce that we could work with and that we could train and monitor and meet with and that loved to do this type of work, that's when everything changed. And it's, it's, it's something we are deeply committed to today. And, you know, we'll use MAs and social workers and all kinds of other people as well. But ultimately, if you have that your nurse do your wellness visits, and that, that wellness visit's about an hour, and they sit down and really spend time, and we, we took the wellness visit and we added, I mean, we, we, we magnetized it and drove it into the feature garage. You know, we have them do it. The template for our wellness visit does not look like the CMS template. But it's, you know, it's asking about their social history. It's asking about drugs. It's asking about alcohol. It's asking about, you know, depression. It's, it's really spending an hour and touching that patient. Then you have the possibility of changing that patient's life because you've established a, a, a one-to-one relationship with that patient with somebody that's going to be there every day. So when you talk about the primary care visit being an hour, I'm sure anyone that's listening to this feels like that almost sounds like it's not doable. Even if we have a lot of nurses or even if we have a few of them that are quarterbacking the the medical home, right? What is it? What other changes have you seen transpire? What other consequences, unintended or intentional, have transpired as a result of that happening? Other than, of course, that, like you said, bending the cost curve, you know, what are some of those impacts you're seeing? Is it, has it been a game changer for the cost curve for you guys? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Matter of fact, um, you know, I think we're, we're unique in that, um, you know, our results have been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In 2016, well, actually, it started in 2015, uh, I went to CMS, and I showed them our results and said, you know, there's something really big happening here. Our, you know, our quality. So, so in year one, our quality was worse in the country. We've been above the 90th percentile ever since. Right. And so um, we, we, you know, in, in our last, we'll talk more about our results, but, but we've had, we've seen tremendous results because we're providing proactive care to these communities. So we, we convinced CMS to do the ACO investment model. Cause the problem was nobody had, none of the rural providers had the money to pay for these for these programs, right? And that's, they, they just don't have the money. And so CMS lent them the money 
to be able to participate in ACOs. And they, they lend ACOs an average of about $2 million each against future shared savings. And, um, and then if, they're, uh, if they have no shared savings, the loan is forgiven. They have to stay in the program for three years. And so we, um, because we, we were part of sort of convincing CMS to do this, we were ready for it. We'd been talking to providers about it, saying, you know, kind of getting people ready. And so there were a total of 41 of these ACOs formed, and, and 21 of them were ours. So we were 50% of that model, actually a little higher than 50% of that model. Studies have been done, published um, at CMMI and now in the New England Journal of Medicine. So in our very first year, uh, that, that cohort saved CMS $131 million. In the very first year. And we have seen continued excellent results where you know this year we're looking at savings well in excess of eighty million dollars just with our clients. They, and that's they, incredible, and they persist over time and they increase over time. So it doesn't matter. You know, you can reset the benchmarks, you can move people around. It doesn't matter because once you start managing patients, you create long-term gains. You do utilization review in a fee-for-service environment. First of all, you're going to argue with a whole bunch of people and waste a bunch of breath. But the other thing is, once you've done it, you've done it. And then, you know, it goes away. You move patients from, you know, getting care at a hospital to ambulatory surgery center. You know, once you've done it, you've done it. But, but, but managing patients and helping patients manage their disease, that's a lifetime investment that continues to build dividends. Because we can't get everybody moving at once, right? So you, you take your cohort. You, you know, and our nurses, they're, they're amazing at this. They're in the data every, every month looking at, at where, where they need to be spending their time. You know, they're using data to make decisions. They're helping these patients and they're changing their lives. And then the benefits for Medicare go on forever. And the patients, of course. Joy, you had asked an interesting question a minute ago about how, how collaborating, how bringing these providers together was really innovative, and it was. I mean, it was, we were all just standing there, like we had no place to move, and it was like, well, we'll just put them together. You know, who cares if they're not in the same state? That was very innovative, and it, it allowed us to really understand how to make that work, and, you know, again, our first year was not as successful as we learned more and more about accountability and reporting. What we didn't know, and that's the kind of, where all providers are in this, in this evolution. What we didn't know at the time was that scale was important for everyone, right? I, it should have been obvious to us. Everyone knows that with insurance, the best way to be successful with insurance is to have a lot of lives, right? That's number one. But CMS had told us that we could have 5,000 life ACOs. And so we thought, you know, and, and so we set up, all, I had at, 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 in uh, 2017 and 2018, 2018, I had 38 10,000 life ACOs, 38 of them. Every quarter, <laughs> we'd have 38 board meetings that were exactly the same, right? So I had 38 collaborative ACOs, and I would get phone calls every quarter from CEOs that, was, that would sound like this. Lynn, this is my first quarter as an ACO. How did I save 10%? I don't know. 
Lynn, I saved 10% last year, and this year I've, I, I've got 3% in losses. What did I do wrong? I don't know. Because I know you all are doing the work, right? And I know as I'm looking at my hundreds of thousands of lives in aggregate, we're saving, you know, in 2016, it was 26 million. 2017, it was 52 million. Say now we're up over 80 million in 2019. I mean, I could see, I could see we're we're making a difference. And I know you're doing the work because I'm 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 measuring your, you know, your work. So I know that so I can hold you accountable. So why is it bouncing all over the place? So we took our data to Millman and said, Millman, <laughs> my my analysts can't tell me why this is happening. And they say it's statistics. Is that right? And they came back and said, Yeah, that's right. You know, a 10, 000, at the 95% confidence interval, a 10,000 life ACO, the results that you get could be plus or minus 10%. I went, well, we're all moving into risk. How's that going to work? Right? If this is just noise, I don't, I don't think providers are going to write a check to CMS for millions of dollars and accept that I tell them, oh, that was just statistics. Right. So, right? I mean, so in 2018, we went to, um, or 2017, this was the uh, fall of 2017, and I figured this out literally on the plane on my way to our annual symposium. Our annual symposium brings all of our clients together. We had, you know, hundreds, and like last year, I think we had close to 1,000 people there, right? And I go, and I didn't have a chance to talk to my staff or anything, Get up, give my keynote, and I have a brand new slide. It's this scatter plot that shows savings and losses by size of ACO. And you could, and anybody could look at that scatter plot and say, oh, I need 100,000 lives in an ACO to make this work. Because we're only, huh. reducing, we're only reducing the cost of care 1% to 2% per year. Right? And that's all that's really possible. You know, we're still in fee-for-service, right? These, these are the rules of the game. So we're only reducing co um, costs couple percent per year if that's the case how much how many lives do you need to be able to see one to two percent and the answer is about a hundred thousand so i went to our clients and this was again you should have seen the look on my staff's face when i said this and i said so i want you all to get into one aco <laughs> they, <laughs> they did they did so and, and I don't, we're not we're not done yet, right? So we've got some that are rolling off, and and uh, but but in 2019 we have the largest ACO in the country. It has 230,000 lives, right? And based on our Q2, and we 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 compiled them in January, right? Said okay, all you guys. I mean, you're all in collaboratives now, anyway. Right, so your collaborative just got bigger, but it's the same rules are treating like your own ACO. You have your own data, your own steering committee, but we need to put you in with others. And if we're going into risk, then we're going to have to put you in a big ACO. And and I said, and if you do that, we will go into risk with you, and we promise that no one will ever pay more than one percent. So we will wow. limit. We'll limit everyone's risk at one percent because we've we've looked at our data, and ever since our first year, there would never be a scenario where we would, anyone would have written a check. 
if you did the work and you had the scale. So that 230,000 life ACO is now above its minimum savings rate, according to our preliminary reports from CMS. And, um, and I think they've saved about $54 million all by themselves. That's incredible. So Lynn, so, we ask everybody, all of our guests, if they could, and you have seen quite a bit, you're telling us about all the changes you've just seen even within the last you know, few years, let alone last decade. But given everything that you've seen, all the different projects that you've worked with, all the different stakeholders that you've brought together, to kind of tackle different challenges, if you could with solve any problem in healthcare or health IT and not have to worry about money or time or resources or stakeholder engagement or any of that, if you could literally snap your fingers and have a problem solved, is there one in particular that stands out to you? And could you speak to that about potentially why you would choose that one? If I could solve any one problem in healthcare? Or yeah, any problem with with no limit to any sort of resources. Um, if you could snap your fingers and have a problem solved, is there anything that stands out to you? You know, I'm a, I'm a very practical girl, so I can't think in terms of, of one that wouldn't make economic sense. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very economic. I'm just driven by numbers, you know, so, so I, I can't think of it in terms of an unlimited budget, but I can tell you that the one thing I think that we could do that could really help the providers, patients, everyone is to have a single claim system for the United States where we can all just submit our claims. I had a 25 bed hospital. I had 52 billers and coders just so wow. that they, they could talk to all the different insurance companies because we were in a resort area. So there were a lot of, a lot of insurance, um, a lot, we had, you know, hundreds of payers we had to deal with. Why, why shouldn't you, you talk about provider burden, right? The provider burden is around having to submit and deal with all these different insurance companies. There should be, why can't the government be an intermediary on that? You know, why can't we just have one, one, one claim system? We send all of our claims, everybody puts their rules engine in. Right. So if you need prior auth, you need prior, whatever it is, we're not going to, you know, I'm not dictating Medicare for all or, or, you know, a single, a single payment system, but could, God, if we could just get all of our claims in one place, because the one thing I've learned in this process is that the claims history on a patient is the best health record we have. I don't have a That's better. That's a really good point. Yeah. Right. And, and what's, what's fragmenting it, is because I have all these insurance companies. And so, you know, if I get a patient that was a Medicare Advantage, you know, you're in regular Medicare, you know, I can't, I, I can't, I can't follow that patient. So that would be my ask. That's that a really, it does. That's a lot of, that's really true. And I mean, that's literally, I mean, it's a lot of that quality tracking is essentially done. That's how they're validating it is through claims history, right? When they are validating these things. And so, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but you make a good point, and I would imagine that the insurance companies might appreciate how effective or how lean that could be when they can all apply their own information in one place. Um, yeah, I think it would save everyone a lot of time and money, and we'd know when yeah, the no, new Malka vaccine actually happened. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Well, you're, you're right. When you think about the one-to-many relationship of a physician to their patients, and then, you know, if they have a secondary or tertiary insurance especially, 
I mean, the problem isn't just multiplicative, but when systems change or health insurers change for patients sometimes annually, it's really overwhelming. So I think that's a really smart ask or wish. Thanks. I'll be running that by Congress. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with you. We'll go with you. Awesome. Um, so Lynn, are there any books that you've read personally or professionally that have impacted you or something maybe you read to keep up with all this stuff in an industry that changes daily, if not hourly? So, okay, this is really geeky. Um, I hope you'll appreciate this, but the most important thing to read every year is the physician fee schedule. This year it was 1,700 pages, um, 1,712 to be exact. And if you want to know what's going to happen in this world, you got to read the physician fee schedule proposed rule every year because it lays out in infinite detail exactly what CMS is thinking, what they're worried about, what they're thinking about in the future. You know, and, and it gives you the opportunity to engage with them in comments. And those comments are so important. So I would say every year, the most significant book I read is, is the proposed rule for the physician fee schedule. You know, I can't say that we've ever already read the book of someone that tells us their favorite read, but that is uh, sharing in this space. We have been through the 1,700 pages, and I think Joy and I can both say that we couldn't agree more. And for anyone listening, that is just a proposed rule because the right. final will have all the feedback and then the responses that are sometimes so telling of the future. They are so telling. You know, it's, and it's amazing that you guys read that because you're the first person I've ever talked to that reads it. And I say this to people all the time. is like, if, if, if you want to know what CMS is very transparent, you just have to read what they write. That's <laughs> you right. know? It's there, but people yep. like read the fact sheet. And, you know, it's funny because... You know, the hospitals, I was talking to uh, um, the Florida Hospital Association. So one of the big innovations that, that we've done now that we figured out the scale issue um, and is, is that we're starting to create statewide ACOs with hospital associations. So um, we did our first one in Mississippi, which is doing extremely well. Um, and, then, and then we uh, just signed uh, arrangements for next year with uh, Florida and Texas and Idaho. Um, and I was talking to them about, about the physician fee schedule and they said, you know, we don't do education for our members on that. We do it on the, on the, on the, on the, on the inpatient prospective payment system and the outpatient prospective payment system. But we don't actually, you know, provide education to the hospitals on the physician fee schedule. And they may not be aware that the physician fee schedule has become the main policy document of CMS every year as it relates to value-based payments. So just because you're a hospital doesn't mean that your people should not be reading that physician fee schedule and um, really understanding it because, you know, it's a system, right? It's doctors and hospitals working together, and we need to understand what, what their issues are as well as, you know, our own employed physicians. All right, if it's not the 1,700-page rule, back to the podcast, <laughs> what else do you read, or what are your, some of your favorite books? Oh, you know what? I read uh, Pulp Fiction. I mean, I'm just, just like, I mean, I'm just, the, I'm New York Times bestseller fiction, mystery novel. I, I, my head is just so full of, like, data and facts. When I read, I read for strict pleasure. That's great. Good. 
And Lynn, <laughs> if people want to connect with you, people want to find you online, they want to learn more about Caravan, how to join forces with you, what are the best ways to find either you personally or the organization? Um, well, me personally, you know, it's, it's lbar at caravanhealth.com. Um, but, you know, as an organization, um, you know, I think it's a really good question. I'm, as a matter of fact, we're, we're just about to announce today um, that I'm going to be um, um, moving into an executive chair role. And Tim Groniger is, uh, has been named our CEO. So he's going to be taking over the day-to-day -day operations and certainly the face of the company and a great person to reach out to if you have questions about Caravan Health as well. That's T. Groniger, the two Gs, uh, at caravanhealth.com. Well, congratulations on the change. Hopefully it's a good one for you. Well, yeah, thank you. It's, you know, the reason behind it is that there is some significant issues with rural payment policy related to value-based payments that I'm concerned are going to dismantle the rural health care ecosystem. So I need to spend more time in Washington um, and more time with um, stakeholders and policymakers correcting some of these issues that, that are going to um, really leave rural providers out of, of value-based care. Well, thank you for all of the work that you are doing and continuing to kind of fight for the change that is needed. And also, thank you for talking with us today. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I, I love learn, I want to learn more about you guys. So, so let's, uh, let's meet up sometime. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Lynn. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us, for this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.